title of the message today is Emmanuel, God with us. Pray with me, please. Gracious and beloved by all in heaven and by thy called children upon the earth, we approach thy sacred word, and glorious it is to us to reflect upon the gift of thy eternally loved Son. As we ponder the gift of the Christ child, our hearts swell warmly with tender joy at that which caused the angels to wonder in awe as God, God the Son, became also a man, a creature, two natures, two essences, in one blessed person, one subsistence, fully God, fully man, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now soften our hearts, Father, that we might yield to thee, Illumine our minds with truth from thy sacred word. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might love thee more tenderly and proclaim thy Father's name and glory in the midst of this, thy congregation, Lord Jesus. To thy praise and glory we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll read today in two stages. First, we'll read verses 1 through 17. Uh, Yes, the genealogy of Matthew. But let's stand together for this. The Word of God, even that portion that we find here in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brethren. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Amenadab, and to Amenadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam Abijah, and to Abijah Asa, and to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat Joram, and to Joram Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham Ahaz, and to Ahaz Hezekiah, And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh, Ammon, and to Ammon, Josiah. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brethren, 
at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abihud, and to Abihud, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akam, and to Akam, Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eliezer, and to Eliezer, Matham, and to Matham, Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Messiah. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. The word of God. You may be seated. And I will first say I feel not unlike the centurion who said to Jesus, I too am a man under authority. And the session has told me to sit. So I sit. <laughs> and it's advantageous. Uh, tiring to stand on just one leg, such as it is. And welcome, Paul. We miss your lovely wife. You sent the less lovely half of your marriage this morning, but we're glad to see you. And welcome, Mara. It's good to see you with your brothers. I'm sure your family's blessed. Yes. Jonathan, welcome back. Is this better than boot camp? Well, we're glad you're here. The birth of our blessed Lord Jesus, as you know, is recorded in the three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. There is a differing approach amongst the three, though. John is by far the most panoramic, huge in its view from past eternity to present. Luke is the most warmly human. I often think of Luke as a social worker's ideal descript of connections in various human relationships. Matthew, though, Matthew stands out with a most legal focus. Matthew, in fact, if you look at the first verse, and there's reason for this in the genealogy today, Matthew begins pointing to two key relationships, two key Old Testament prophecies which Messiah fulfills. And I use the word Messiah because that is what Christ is. Greek, it comes out Christos. In the Hebrew, it comes out Mashiach, Messiah. First, the Davidic kingship, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David. Second, the covenant Yahweh made with Abraham 
that through Abraham's seed, Yahweh would bless all families of the earth. So three groupings showing the legal connection between Christ and both David and Abraham. Abraham to David, verses two through six, then David to the deportation, verses six to 11, then the deportation back to Messiah, verses 12 to 16. It's interesting how this uh, momentum builds toward Messiah, Messiah, the Christ. But let's consider the two genealogies of Matthew and Luke, because I trust most of you will know that Luke also contains a genealogy that is often not read nor preached on. While the two agree, speaking of the same divine person, there are differences. Luke ascends from last to first, from Joseph all the way back to Adam, son of God. Matthew begins with the source of his genealogy, Abraham. Matthew, in his description, does not go higher than Abraham, father of the elect people, while Luke proceeds back to Adam. Matthew treats of Messiah's legal descent, showing himself to omit some of the ancestors, thus assisting the reader by arranging them into these three fourteens, while Luke follows the natural descent with far greater exactness. Let Calvin speak. In Matthew's catalog, we look at the covenant of God by which he had adopted the seed of Abraham as his people, separating them by a middle wall of partition from the rest of the nations, Ephesians 2. Luke directed his view higher, for although from the time that God had made his covenant with Abraham, a redeemer was promised in a peculiar manner to his seed. Yet we know that since the transgression of the first man, Adam, all needed a redeemer. And that he, Messiah, was accordingly appointed, then manifested, for the whole world. So how, if he was saved, was Adam saved? By Jesus. How was any of Methuselah, Enoch, how were any of the men of faith saved? Only by Jesus, though Jesus had not yet been sent. Calvin continues, It was a wonderful purpose of God that Luke exhibit Christ to us as the son of Adam, while Matthew confined him within the single family of Abraham. 
Let us know, therefore, that to the whole human race there has been exhibited salvation through Messiah, for not without reason is he called son of Noah and son of Adam. That's Luke. But as we must seek him in the word of God, the Spirit wisely directs us through Matthew to the holy race of Abraham, into whose hands the treasure of eternal life, along with Christ Messiah, was committed for a time. <laughs> all praise to our all-wise God for his wonderful loving kindness, revealing himself and his ways to the sons of men. So consider again the threefold division of the nation by Matthew from the time when Messiah was promised to Abraham to the fullness of time, Galatians 4, when he was manifested or revealed in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3. Previous to the day of David, the tribe of Judah occupied no higher rank than any of the other 11. It had no power. But in David, royal authority burst upon all with surprising splendor, remaining until the day of Jeconiah at the deportation. That's Jeconiah, verse 11. Yet still there lingered in the descendants of Judah a portion of the rank and government of the godly until the coming of Messiah. Thus, in Matthew's genealogy, which sets the contextual stage for the angelic announcement to Joseph, it was with reference to the promise that Messiah is called son of David, son of Abraham, and God must have thought this rather important to fix our gaze with accuracy upon him who is called Messiah, the Christ. God had promised to Abraham he would give him a seed in whom all families of the earth would be blessed. And that passage is Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Then in David, a still clearer promise that God would establish his kingdom, the throne of his kingdom forever, 2 Samuel 7, saying that one of David's descendants would be king as long as the sun and moon endure. That's Psalm 72. And that this descendant's Davidic throne would be as the days of heaven. That's Psalms 89. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. By giving the name Christ, or Messiah, the Spirit through Matthew is pointing out his office as Redeemer the divinely anointed one to the office of Redeemer. 
and the Holy Spirit having contextualized who the announcement points to, he is Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, now turns to the birth of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, Matthew 1, and stand with me. We'll read now verses 18 through 25, standing as we read God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Amen. The word of God. You may be seated. Even in the maximum security prison, I made them stand when we read scripture. And when they sat, I would explain, that was the word of God. Now this is Pastor Chaplin Clayton. Big difference. And that for the youngest of those among us is why we stand and sit, stand and sit. It's because that is the word of God. Explanation, verses 18 through 19, Matthew 1. It's a beautiful passage. Mary, still a virgin, never having lain with a man, when she was found to be with child. Shock, shock to all but her. Shock to everyone but her. Pastoral reflection. Observe that God does not seem overly concerned how his dealings with Mary affected public opinion about her. God does not seem overly concerned that his dealings with Mary 
might have detrimentally affected public opinion about Mary. It's not about me. Never was, never is. It's not about my comfort or my sense of societal security. It's about him and his sovereign, providential, always purposes through me. And the best posture is that that Mary manifested, portrayed for us. Behold, the servant of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. Listen. If you are upset about anything, you don't really get it. And I've been there and done that just this past week, even today. If I am upset about anything, then I don't really get it. I'm not behaving maturely. And perhaps I'm not mature, but behaving like a mere spiritual infant or like an unbeliever at worst. And then Matthew says, and Joseph, verse 19. What was, we must ask, ponder, what was Joseph to think? Joseph? I had an angel come and tell me, really? What was he to think? Well, she's lying, of course. She's lying. They've not read the Gospel of Luke. This is in process of being played out. She's lying. But Joseph here is described as a just or righteous man who in his very core condemned the obvious crime of his wife, Mary. She has broken trust. trust. She has broken it. There's no other explanation. And yet... And this is, quote, Calvin, the gentleness of his disposition prevented him from going to the utmost rigor of the law, end quote. Hmm. Joseph was not soft or effeminately promoting uncleanness under the pretense of mercifully dealing with Mary. He only made some abatement, some lessening from stern justice so as not to expose Mary to evil report in the eyes of everybody legally. How can you not make pastoral reflection here? Is this how you do it? Mm -hmm. 
Is this how you are? In relation to that person that you're thinking about right now? You understand how utterly tarnished, yes, besmeared, was Joseph's honor. Mm. And yet, Joseph heart, Joseph's heart resonated with the Father's heart. It resonated with the Father's great heart who eternally loves mercy over judgment, causing through his beloved Son to enable mercy to triumph over judgment. Oh, give us hearts like thy great abounding in grace heart, that we might say softly, to the one before us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Hmm. Much to ponder, much to contour my life around that God obviously highly praises and praised here. 20 through 21. Calvin says, and while he was considering these things, and here we may see how seasonably the word usually, the Lord usually aids his people. It was while Joseph is considering these things. Do you think he has feet propped up, sipping hot tea, eating brownies? Or is he in agony? His, his honor has been besmeared by her. Well, Calvin says, Hence we infer that while the Lord appears not to observe our cares and distresses, we are still under his eye. He may indeed hide himself and remain silent for a time, a season. But when our patience has been subjected to trial, he will aid us at the time which his own wisdom has selected. Do you get that? <laughs> it's never when I thought he should have done it. It never has been. But he is God, and I am not. So however slow or late his assistance might be thought to be, it is for our advantage to his glory and our blessing that he thus delays. Now some of us in this room are praying for a thing 
that we have not had an answer to the way we wanted, certainly. But his eye is still on us. And in his sovereign providence, he knows best. And it will be worked to his glory and our blessing. We either trust him or we don't. And if we don't trust him, where are you going to go? If you turn from him, where will you turn to? Peter said, Lord, we won't leave you alone. Have the words of life. Yeah. So Joseph, son of David, elevated his mind to the lofty mystery of the promised seed on David's throne. God said, or the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David. Oh, what's that? That's referencing back his lineage. He is of the Davidic line. And then says, be not afraid to take Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. Hmm. Notice, while Mary is told that his name will be Emmanuel, God with us, Mary was not told what his name would be, Jesus. I trust you're aware of that. Gabriel does not tell Mary that his name will be Jesus. But the angel tells Joseph. And Joseph, last verse of our chapter, called his name Jesus. What's that? Set in the context of the alleged Messiah's linkage to the Abrahamic covenant, to the Davidic kingship, what is Joseph's calling his name Jesus, but his adoption of Jesus, because fathers named children. Who named John the Baptist? Elizabeth spoke, because her man can't talk right now. His name will be John, and they argue with her. What happens? The father speaks, his name is John. John. And Joseph names Jesus, thus showing the adoption. Jesus is his legally adopted, and thus establishes the legal link to the Davidic throne. All the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it would be paid back? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory for 
ever. Oh, man. Observe that the angel tells Joseph, it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now listen to some powerful words from Calvin. Those whom Christ is sent to save are in themselves lost. He is expressly called the savior of the church and if those whom God admits to fellowship with himself were sunk in death and ruin till they are restored to life by Christ, what shall we say of strangers to the covenant, Ephesians 2, who have never been illuminated by the hope of life? When salvation is declared to be shut up in Christ, it clearly implies that the whole human race is devoted to destruction. The cause of this destruction ought to be observed, for it is not unjust or without good reason that the heavenly judge pronounces us accursed. The angel declares that we have perished and are overwhelmed by an awful condemnation because we stand excluded from life by our sins. Thus we obtain a view of our corruption and depravity, for if any man lived a perfectly holy life, he might do without Christ as Redeemer. Do ye have no need of the Redeemer? Nay, you need, you desperately need the Redeemer. But all to a man need his grace, and therefore it follows that they are slaves of sin and are destitute of true righteousness, which the Christian only has because Christ gives the Christian with Christ's righteousness so that the Father looks at me and sees the very righteousness of Christ upon me. That's salvation. Or verses 22 through 3. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Christ the actual presence of God with his people, and not as before in his shadowy presence has been exhibited. And this is why Paul declares in Colossians 2 that in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. And certainly he would not be a properly qualified mediator if he did not unite both natures in his one person and thus bring mankind into alliance with God. We are brought into alliance with God because we are in Christ who is God and man. Wow. So it cannot be denied that this name Emmanuel 
implies a contrast between the presence of God exhibited in Christ with every other kind of manifestation to the ancient people before his coming. The virgin birth of God the Son raised to a glorious feverish pitch the manifestation of God in the midst of his people. Christ man leads us to Christ God. Praise him. Now when Christ appeared in the flesh, it follows that it was not completely, but only in part that God had formerly appeared to the fathers. Here arises another proof that Christ is God manifested in the flesh. First Timothy 3, that Don read. He discharged the office of mediator from the beginning of the world, but as this depended wholly on his full and final revelation, he is justly called Emmanuel at that time, at the incarnation, when clothed, as it were, with a new character, he appears in public as a priest to atone for the sins of men by the sacrifice of his body, to reconcile them back to the Father by the price of his blood, and in a word, fulfill every part of the salvation of man. Well, the first thing we ought to consider in this name is the divine majesty of Christ so as to yield to him the reverence due the only and eternal God. If Jesus Christ is God with us, what manner of reverential fear ought his people to approach him with? And we must not forget the fruit which God intended we should receive from this name. For whenever we contemplate the one person of Christ as God-man, we ought to hold it for certain that if we be united to Christ by faith, we possess God within us. Doctrine. Well, front and center, the big doctrine that leaps out at us from this, our passage, is the doctrine of the virgin birth. And so the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so the Nicene Creed, Christ who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And so today's definition of Chalcedon as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin, the God-bearer. 
Mary bore within her womb the second person of the Trinity, who is fully God, as the Father is fully God. This is why Elizabeth cries out, Why is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Wow. Messiah Jesus is one of us, yet without sin and without the original sin and guilt of the first Adam. Messiah Jesus is thus the last, final, second Adam, of whom Adam the first was but a type. Christ man therefore leads us to Christ God. And this is why we teach our children of Jesus the man. Because in Sunday school and catechism, we are placing them on a path that will lead them to Christ God. There's doctrinal rationale behind what we do. Very important. Finally, Per the virgin birth, all controversy concerning how Isaiah 7.14 should be translated is settled with the Holy Spirit's breathed out interpretation through Matthew in chapter 1. You say, I didn't know there was controversy about Isaiah 7. You bet there is. Read your revised standard version. RSV. The RSV was translated by a team of translators who were lock, stock, and barrel liberal theologians. And this is why the RSV translates Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a young woman shall conceive. And it's true that the Hebrew Bethula or Alma which one is it with there's uncertainty with precision just from the text of Isaiah 7:14, but the Holy Spirit said, this is the proper translation of Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The mystery of the union of God and man in the man, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. And by the time we stand, we could have read it. So, Isaiah 7, 14 and 15. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows to receive evil and choose good. Listen to Calvin, it's insightful, on 
what theology calls a hypostatic union. You say, what? God and man in one person. Calvin says, here are the prophet, and it's Isaiah 7.15 he's talking about. Here the prophet proves the true nature, human nature of Christ. For it was incredible that he who was God should be born of a virgin. So he therefore describes the marks of human nature in order to show that Christ will actually appear in the flesh in the nature of man and be reared in the same manner children commonly are. The Jews had a different way of rearing children from what is followed by us. This is Calvin writing in the early 1500s. For the Jews used honey, which is not so customary among us, and to this day still retain the cause of the custom of causing a child to taste butter and honey as soon as it is born before receiving suck. That's Calvin, early 1500. This is Jewish practice. So Calvin continues, that he may know. That is, until he arrives at the age when he can distinguish between good and evil, which denotes the period up to which he shall be reared after the manner of a child, and this proves the reality of his nature. He therefore means understanding and judgment, such as is obtained when the period of childhood is past. Listen carefully. Thus we see how far the Son of God condescended on our account, so that he not only was fed on our food, but also for a time was deprived of understanding and endured all our weaknesses. This relates to his human nature, for it cannot apply to his divinity. Of this state of ignorance, Luke testifies when he says, and the child grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Just tell Calvin, if Luke had merely said that Christ grew, he, we might have supposed to mean with men, but he expressly adds with God, Christ must therefore have been for a time like a little child, that so far as relates to his human nature, he was deficient in understanding. Wow. Powerful to ponder the mystery of the union of God and man from a wee babe who is knows but the mother's womb in which he is, is born amidst the, the shock, the pain to the newborn child, learns to suck, but presumably would have been given butter and honey first, and then grows and, 
Um, in fact, the servant songs of Isaiah indicate that morning by morning you awaken me to teach me, the Messiah says. Wonder of wonder. But my brothers and sisters, God with us. Though you pass through the fire, you will not be burned, for I am with you. Though you pass through the waters, they will not overtake you, for I am with you. You say, what? No pain, no death? Oh, no. Psalms 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Say it with me. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Emmanuel, God with me through my cancer, through my heart disease, through my bereavement, through my ALS, through whatever it is that I'm walking through. Emmanuel, God with us. He walks with us. Let's pray. Oh, blessed Father, how we marvel, marvel, marvel at thy word. It is with awe that we approach the wonder, the mystery of God in the flesh, the sending of thy Son to become man, to become one of us, to become, yes, the second Adam. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that today in the flesh you as both God and man are seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, representing us as a chosen people, called and loved by thee, Father, I pray for the one who is suffering from the loss of a loved one. I pray that the reality of Emmanuel will resonate in their heart. I lift up the one who is going through sickness, disease. I pray that you, Emmanuel, will resonate peace, peace, within their heart. Be glorified and praised, for we love you. We are in awe of thee, but we long for the day when you will gather all your children together. And humbly we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. <laughs>